Welcome to the Forensic Nutritionist Podcast. My name is Fiona Tuck. I'm a nutritional medicine practitioner and a qualified skin therapist for over 25 years. The Forensic Nutritionist Podcast takes an investigative approach into all things nutrition, gut health and skin, using qualified experts to bring you information that you can trust. We are all unique. The information presented herein is not intended to diagnose, to treat or cure disease. Please seek professional medical guidance prior to modifying any diet, exercise or lifestyle program. Let us begin. On the podcast today, we're talking with Dr. Natasha Andreadis. Now, Dr. Natasha is a fertility specialist, a gynecologist, reproductive endocrinologist, and clinical lecturer of the University of Sydney. She is also known as Dr. Tash, the fanny mechanic. Dr. Tash, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us this morning. Thank you for having me, Fiona. I'm so excited to talk with you because I'm not, you know, I'm really fascinated with the hormones, but you may be surprised to hear that I have never actually been to see a gynecologist and I'm nearly 50. <laughs> wow. How did you get away with that one? I don't know. Maybe I've just got really good hormones. Um, so I'm just really curious to chat to you more about hormones and, and really find out what made you want to be a gynecologist. Uh, well, I wanted to be a doctor since I was 11. And apparently in high school, I was telling all the girls that I wanted to be a gynecologist. Uh, so for me, <laughs> uh, I suppose it's my life's purpose. Yeah. Right. But what, what was the fascination for you? Just something you were, were naturally drawn to? Yeah, I mean, I remember since I was a, a small child, I had a fascination with the human body and how it worked. And uh, what I liked about uh, hormones is that um, I suppose my imagination would run wild and I'd imagine testosterone, progesterone, estrogen uh, as actual people. And uh, that often helped me understand uh, hormone biology, I feel, but it, it intrigued me from the outset. And, uh, you know, we, we know that hormones really play a massive role in our, in our body, in our day to day. So for me, it was just a very fascinating area. Um, and I really like prescribing hormones as well. Um, yeah, individually, depending on the patient, what their issues are, what their concerns are. So I actually find it an interesting part of medicine, uh, as I really also enjoy um, pharmacology and understanding how hormones and drugs work. Fantastic. And because, please excuse my ignorance, because I've never actually been to see a gynecologist, what does the majority of your work in, include? Because I know you're also an endocrinologist and are they slightly different? Are they the same thing? So essentially, um, I am an obstetrician gynecologist by training and then I did a further three-year training in reproductive medicine and fertility, infertility, IVF procedures, etc. And as part of that training, uh, you actually become a reproductive endocrinologist. So basically a doctor 
whose specialty lies in understanding reproductive hormones, which is, again, very separate to a physician. So a doctor who has specialised as a physician to become an endocrinologist. Uh, and they're doctors that look after other uh, aspects of hormone biology, be it um, diabetes is a big one, thyroid yeah. health, osteoporosis. Yes, so they overlap, but I work a lot with uh, general endocrinologists. So I send a lot of my patients to uh, endocrinologists to, to have their osteoporosis managed, their thyroid. I mean, I can easily prescribe thyroid medication and I do when I see my patients, but for long-term follow-up care and ongoing management, it's very important that they lock in with a general clinical endocrinologist. Um, and similarly, they often refer to me uh, for infertility and, and gynecological issues. Fascinating. And hormones is such a huge area. Um, you know, if you think how intricately the whole endocrine system really is. When it comes to female repro issues, so I know that's a whole massive area in itself, but I, I would presume some of the common ones would be things like endometriosis and PCOS and fibroids. Um, how much of these genetic conditions do you think are genetic and how much do you think are brought on by lifestyle factors? Uh, all of them. Right. So there's generally a genetic component with everything. Uh, you can't ignore yeah. genetics, but then the, the extra layer is often lifestyle. Uh, so you, you talk about the fact that you've never been to a gynecologist. So I would say to you, you probably got one good, good um, genes in some way in your family somewhere, but you're probably really good at looking after yourself and you're also a dietitian and you really probably know how to eat. So I would say for you, uh, you're an exception, but it, it you know, it, it, it also lies because um, lies under the fact that you're probably very good at looking after yourself, you know, so I should be interviewing you about how that happens, but that might be another podcast. <laughs> I mean, when I say I don't treat hormones, I, I do think, you know, diet has a, a massive role in um, general health and well-being. And of course, I believe that it would also have an impact on um, hormones as well. And we, we know to a certain degree that it, it can. And I've seen some great improvements with, I mean, hormones can affect the skin, for example. So, And, and that's really the area that I, I focus on. But when you're looking, um, and you know, you're a, a medically trained, when you're actually looking at hormones and the reproductive system, how much would you look at, say, diet and gut health, for instance, when it comes to treating these things? Or would you purely look at it from a, this is a condition that I need to then treat with medication? Well, my approach to medicine uh, is very, <coughs> excuse me, holistic. So I, every single patient that comes to me has a, an extensive questionnaire to fill in. And I, <coughs> excuse me, um, I ask them about their diet all the time. So I ask them about, um, excuse me, <coughs> I'm having a bit of a coughing fit here. Can I get some water? You sure can. I'll be back. That's all right. <coughs> I will. So... When it comes to diet mm. and say the repro, um, you know, conditions, and when it comes to hormones, how much of that would you look at with um, in your practice, looking at the diet and say gut health as well? Well, all of my patients when they come into my practice um, always have to fill in a form uh, that explains to me a lot about 
every aspect of their health. And diet does play a big role. I ask them about, uh, you know, what kind of diet they are on, whether they're vegan, vegetarian, uh, whether they follow uh, certain um, types of, of diets, you know, the 5-2, for example. Um, yeah, you know, what if they have any food allergies? So I always take an extensive um, food and dietary history. And then um, invariably I, I spot an issue because most people have an issue when it comes to their diet, I would think. Yes, I agree. So I then, um, I refer often to naturopaths or I have an in-house dietitian that I refer to who also has a similar approach to, um, you know, diet as I do. So when I say that, I mean a more open-minded, broad view of things, not so much a, you know, a conventional, you must do it this way or, or else. Uh, it plays it plays a huge role, especially with with patients with PCOS. For example, we know that in managing PCOS, uh, the guidelines clearly say that lifestyle is the first thing that you should be looking at in managing these women, and invariably that means assessing their diet, but also making dietary changes. Uh, the same with endometriosis. You know, often uh, little tweaks in their diet can really substantially improve their pelvic pain. And for some women, it can be as simple as reducing the amount of cow's dairy. Uh, and in other women, you, you know, they reduce their cow's dairy, but they still have ongoing pain. So it needs to be a very simplistic individual approach. FODMAPs is also a big one. Mm. Um, you know, we know that there was a paper in the Australian Journal of, of Obstetrics and Gynecology that actually did say that a FODMAPs diet used in women with endometriosis can improve their period pain. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we know this. So... It's extremely important that it be assessed. And uh, slowly, I think, uh, you know, gynecologists are realising this. But certainly when I was moving through my training, which was, well, I, I finished my complete training in 2011, um, you know, diet wasn't really much discussed. And mm. we didn't really get much training in terms of uh, the impact of diet uh, on women's health. But that is slowly changing. And a lot of it has to you know, rely on the patient, I feel, to do their research. And unfortunately, fortunately, unfortunately, be their own advocate for their health. And if they find that, um, uh, you know, their doctor's not giving them a good, good advice, then, you know, seek it from somebody else if they feel that it's going to make an impact on their health. And that person could be simp a simp simp simply, you know, a naturopath or, or a dietitian. I've seen so many people who come to me and say, it wasn't until I saw this dietitian that I made these changes that my... Um, my acne cleared up or yeah. my endo improved. Absolutely. And are there any, when you say you look at the diet, are there any red flags? Are there any common um, patterns that you see with sort of hormonal imbalance or particular diets that when you see that you go, uh oh, um, that may be contributing? Yeah. I mean, diets full of sugar. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had one patient who, uh, last couple of weeks ago said, oh, you know, I have to have gelato twice a day. Um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it was that she was having difficulties losing weight. And I'm like, whoa, you know, cut back on the gelato. Um, I, think, I think sugar is a big one. Yeah. Um, and sugar in, in, in very explicit ways or not so explicit ways. So, you know, either the, the gelato or the lollies or, um, you know, the sugar that's added to the sauces that you might have um, with your, you know, fried chips or something um so it, it, that and also women 
not fueling adequately for activities. So a lot of women love to exercise, some women over-exercise, but I don't think it's often the issue with over-exercising per se. I feel it's women don't fuel adequately for their activities. So if you're going to go on a 7K run in the morning, which a lot of women do a few times a week, make sure that you fuel for that. So I ask them, do you eat before you go? And if they don't, then what do you eat when you get back from that run? And if they say, I don't eat before or after my run, I'm like, well, that's, there's a major issue. Mm. Yeah. It's I, tough, well, hey, it's, it's the writing's on the wall. Yeah. You know, and I still think that, you know, and I, I say this over and over and again, but particularly with women, and there still seems to be this stigma with um, carbohydrates, but the good quality ones, which we you know, you obviously need for energy, but need for good gut health as well. But um, fat as well. I mean, we know that healthy fats are so important for hormones. And there still seems to be a lot of people that, you know, don't want to increase things like extra virgin olive oil in the diet and all the sort of fatty fish because they're scared of the, the calories. And we really need to re-educate people that it, it doesn't necessarily work like that because um, that can have a, a huge impact as well on, on the way that the body works so i i do see that a lot so i think there is a lot more education that can or is needed to to really help people know what is the the healthy food to eat and and not go get so caught up on things like like calories and um i I think we could really see an improvement there yeah i mean i I have a, a diagram on my desk at work that outlines where all hormones come from and when people see all hormones stem from cholesterol, you know, people are quite shocked by that, but it's yeah. because they, they're not aware of it and that cholesterol gets such a bad rap, whereas it's, it's not all bad at all. It's, it's, it's actually very important and we can't make hormones adequately if we're not eating good enough and, and um, adequate amounts of fat. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. So um, when it comes to things like, PMT, you know, this is something people I hear a lot say, you know, oh, I get really bad PMT. Can you talk us through just sort of what happens monthly with women's hormones and sort of what would be normal? Because a lot of women start getting food cravings and, and bloating and tiredness and what's normal in that cycle and, and when it becomes abnormal. Well, it's a, firstly, it's about women educating themselves about their menstrual cycles, which unfortunately I find women don't understand enough about this at all. Mm. And it's not really up to your gynecologist to explain it to you because how much time do we have to explain a very complex process? So I say to women, go out, get a book about your periods and your menstrual cycle. You must do this. It's so important. And that it's, it's important that we get young girls to understand this. You know, um, and that's why I love seeing younger girls that are around 16 or 18 because I'm like, oh, excellent. I have, I have you at a, at a phase in your life when I could potentially make a huge difference when you're probably mature, more mature than, say, a 13 or a 14-year-old who's still grappling with the fact that she's getting her periods um, to be able to educate them. And moving forwards into the decades, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, they're, more, they're better understanding of what's going on in their bodies and more empowered. I mean, I see women who are trying to get pregnant and don't understand the menstrual cycle and it blows me away. And I always say to them, go away and read this book. In fact, I give them a recommendation for a number of books. <laughs> and um, It's great because most of them do read these books and, um, and it, they, they become enlightened and it's much better than just using an app. 
you know. Um, so that would be my first point. So unless you understand what is going on in your body, you're going to be lost. You're going to be kind of a boat out at sea, just completely going nowhere and understanding what's happening to you. So being educated, firstly, is empowering. So when we talk about the menstrual cycle, um, there are certain phases in the menstrual cycle. So in the, you've got the first half of the menstrual cycle that includes the, 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 you know, the actual period and what we call the early follicular phase. So in the early follicular phase of the menstrual cycle, um, you know, if you've got a good number of follicles or your, your ovary has a, a number of follicles, you know, um, that are potentially um, recruitable, what we call. So it's a bit like a race. Um, there's a, a number of eggs starting off the race at the beginning of every month, but only the best egg um, will or follicle um, will win that race. And, and that follicle that wins the race is the follicle that will be the one that ovulates, that then uh, helps us potentially become pregnant and, and so on. So in this phase of the menstrual cycle, the brain is putting out uh, what we call follicle stimulating hormone. And what that does is it, 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 it actually does that. It stimulates the, the follicles to grow. And the dominant hormone in this phase of the cycle is estrogen. And, uh, you know, we've got estrogen receptors everywhere in most parts of our body. And estrogen has a huge amount, amounts of benefits. And what it does in terms of insulin sensitivity, it, it enables our body to be more sensitive to insulin. Mm -hmm. And um, we uh, are, you know, are more likely to, um, you know, less likely to store fat in this phase of the cycle. We've got a good metabolic rate. Uh, estrogen, when it's at adequate levels, is very important in um, maintaining uh, the feel-good neurotransmitters in our brain, so serotonin, dopamine, and you've got noradrenaline. Um, and our blood glucose levels are quite stable in, in this phase as well, and you've got less water retention, and your sleep is, 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 is quite um, effective in that uh, you, you tend to sleep better in this phase of the cycle. Um, if you put the pill into the mix, the pill's going to kill all of this. It flatlines this whole process we've just talked about. Yeah. Um, and, you know, physiologically, we are most like men uh, in this phase of the menstrual cycle but at any other time. Uh, and I bring that up because a lot of studies have not been done, uh, including women uh, in the studies, especially around food and, 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 and exercise, because we're considered too complex. Um, because unfortunately, we just don't stay in this phase of the menstrual cycle. We move into other phases, which I'll talk about now. So in your, um, you know, in the lead up to ovulation, so what happens at ovulation, the estrogen um, levels increase in the first half of the follicular phase. And the brain senses this rise in estradiol and the, it's almost like the, the ovaries telling the, the brain, hey, guess what? This follicle uh, forward slash egg is now mature. We are ready to rock and roll. Please help this egg release. So then what happens is brain can see this and it puts out a hormone called luteinizing hormone, uh, which then causes uh, ovulation. And uh, ovulation is a key factor in women. This is the most important event in a woman's menstrual cycle because without ovulation, you don't get a corpus luteum forming and you don't get the production of progesterone, which is a very important uh, hormone as well, which we'll talk about. Um, so in the luteal phase of your menstrual cycle, so in the phase where you have ovulated, just ovulated, the dominant hormone then becomes progesterone. And what does progesterone do? Uh, it lowers insulin sensitivity and because estradiol levels have dropped compared to the first half, you uh, have less serotonin, less dopamine 
and then you have that the hunger, the cravings, and um, your blood glucose levels tend to be more unstable. Uh, you also, interestingly, you have a rise in your metabolic rate. So uh, the progesterone itself increases body temperature, and your your metabolic rate increases. So you get an extra one to three hundred cows per day that you burn. So if you can actually control your hunger sugar cravings, et cetera, in this phase of the cycle, then you, you, it's a good type of time to actually lose some weight as well. Mm. Um, so it's important that women understand these phases because when you understand this, you also understand that, hey, having these sugar cravings, these hunger cravings uh, is actually normal. Uh, yeah. It's not abnormal. And progesterone also uh, makes us... Uh, kind of a bit more, it can make us a bit more weepy and we're, we're more likely to want to stay in. And, you know, there have been studies that have shown women become more crafty and more domesticated at this time. So I say to people, just follow that, you know, understand that if you're going to be in, you're going to be next week in that phase of your menstrual cycle, then maybe don't plan so many things, maybe plan on staying home a little bit more and doing the baking. Um, and know that maybe in that phase of your cycle, sleep may also be disturbed as well. So it's so important women understand this. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's also a nice way of giving yourself a bit of a break. So when, but what I mean by that is not being so hard on yourself. Um, so women, for example, who want to keep up the high intensity activities throughout the whole month, maybe you should curb that in the second half and do more things like yoga, qigong or other things that are a bit more nourishing to the body uh, and, and maybe leaving the high intensity stuff in the first half of your cycle um, where even testosterone levels are higher. So just before ovulation, around the time of ovulation, your testosterone levels are actually highest, uh, which biologically makes sense because that's when you want to be, we want to be horny at that time so you can have sex to have a baby. Mm. But testosterone also helps us, gives us, gives us more energy makes us feel good, makes us feel strong. Um, and at, in this phase of the cycle, we're also more likely or better to um, build muscle and muscle mass. Uh, and that's why women with PCOS who have high testosterone levels can actually uh, build muscle mass quite effectively, which then helps their insulin sensitivity. But that's another situation. So I don't know if I've answered your question there. Yes, you, you have. It, it is quite quite fascinating with the hormones. and. I mean, I actually notice my temperature change. I, I can actually feel that I, I'm not as cold. You know, I, I actually can tell because my, 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 I feel a difference in my temperature, but I, I might just be extra sensitive to that kind of stuff. But um, I think, you know, if you are in tune with your body, then you do start to, to notice those subtle changes. But why do you think that, um, say, with PMT, for instance, sometimes people get it worse than others or just certain times that it will be worse. So for instance, you may be somebody that doesn't really get PMT, but then all of a sudden um, you've noticed that you've started to get real irritability and, and that you've started to get PMT, but it's not all the time. Is that just lifestyle factors, do you think? Yeah, look, I think stress plays a big role. Uh, for example, um, you know, cortisol, the stress hormone. If yes. you've had a really stressful couple of months, then uh, cortisol can have a significant impact on, on, on all of these, these hormones. Uh, it can cause what we call a, a progesterone relative resistance. So 
um, it's it, it can definitely make PMS or PMT worse. And uh, when I often talk to my patients about the importance and interaction of these hormones, I, I, I steal an idea from a, a doctor, a pharmacist, um, Ken something or other, his last name completely escapes me. But a few years ago, I went to, onto a hormone course and he talked about the theory of a car and its passengers. If you imagine you've got a car, uh, in the front seat is your hormone cortisol and then next to it, you've got insulin and then you've got thyroid hormone. In the back seat is your testosterone, progesterone, estradiol. So what he was trying to point out around that was that in your driver's seat, you've got cortisol and cortisol and thyroid and insulin should really not come first, but they need to be assessed before you look at things like progesterone, testosterone, estradiol. So when I ask patients about their menstrual cycle, if they say, oh, my PMS has been really bad lately, I will ask them about their stress levels first. Um, and invariably, you can see there's a, there's a real pattern. Uh, when women have really bad, stressful periods, they, 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 they don't tolerate um, the fluctuations in progesterone and estradiol so well. And a lot of us got to do with mindset as well. You know, when we talk about PMS, PMT, automatically there's a negative connotation there, you know, that every woman in her menstrual cycle in the second half will always have a bad experience. It's just like periods. Some, a lot of women feel that their periods have to be painful and, and that they're a, they're a bother, they're a nuisance and a pain in the ass when they don't have to be. So I think mindset also plays a big role. Um, and, and I think, you know, uh, how you look after yourself month to month also impacts on the, the, the PMS and the PMT and your experience of that. Um, and I also think there's a cultural component to that as well. And of course, in moving through the, um, the phases of our reproductive lifespan, when you go through the perimenopause, when your ovaries start winding down and you don't ovulate every month and you don't make progesterone, you are going to experience a more kind of a, a greater havoc in the second half of your menstrual cycle. Mm. So let's, let's talk about perimenopause a little bit then, because I know when people talk about menopause, sometimes I think people get perimenopause and menopause confused. Mm. Um, so when it comes to perimenopause, can you just explain what that is? When does it start and sort of what's going on in the body, sort of the symptoms of perimenopause? So peri means around, mm. uh, around the menopause. So by definition, you are menopausal if you haven't had a period for a year. That's the definition of menopause. So in the lead up to that, be it over five to eight years, that's the perimenopause. So every woman in her 40s is perimenopausal. Whether people, you know, point that out or not, you are in your 40s perimenopausal. And again, I always say to women, you have to read about the perimenopause into your 40s. And I would say every, every time a woman turns 40, she should be given a book about the perimenopause um, <laughs> because it prepares you uh, for that that wind down and and I often see the perimenopause as kind of a, a dial down light switch you know you dial it down slowly and that's what the perimenopause is in it 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 generally does that over a number of years whereas some women can become menopausal literally um, very quickly overnight when you say remove their ovaries 
uh, for surgery, if they've had to have their ovaries removed or if they've had radiotherapy or chemotherapy, then that's the kind of flick of the switch, the either on or off. That's a very different thing. Um, and, you know, women can go through the perimenopause at any phase of their, in, their, in their, uh, their lifespan. So say if a woman is menopausal at the age of 30, so she has had her last period of 30, um, for unexplained factors, then her whole twenty, she's pretty much been perimenopausal. Um, so it's a definition that is very different from each individual woman. But we know that during that that phase, women tend to experience uh, certain things uh, that they can help manage uh, with uh, lifestyle factors generally overall, but also drugs. You know, medications, hormone replacement therapy can be extremely effective and important for women. And I would say to women not to be scared of hormone therapy because it can really improve women's quality of life. And, um, you know, when you think about it, the average age of, of menopause is around 50, 51. Most women now in Australia live into their 80s. So you spend a good chunk of your life in that post-menopausal phase. So it's extremely important that women look at, 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 at what they can do in regards to hormone therapy. Not all women want it, but I think it's, all, it's important that women are offered it and that they um, have a good discussion with their doctors about what it means for them. When it comes to hormone replacement therapy, when would you recommend it to someone? So if, what, what I mean by that is, um, so if some, would you recommend it in perimenopause to prolong them actually hitting menopause and and what is the benefit of actually doing that you can't really prolong the menopause yeah. if it's a biological thing um what you can do is help their symptoms it's about symptomatic control yeah. and um i mean managing women who are menopausal before the age of 40 is different to managing a woman who's gone through the menopause at the age of 50 because yeah. Um, you know, if a girl's gone through the menopause at age 25, which I do see, then she's a significantly increased risk of developing things like osteoporosis yeah. that will significantly reduce her lifespan and impact the quality of her life. Uh, so, it's a, again, it's a very individual thing. Uh, a lot of it is about managing symptoms. So, for example, if a woman comes to me and she is perimenopausal and the only thing that she's really worried about are you know are heavy periods then um, I will always talk about lifestyle first what she's eating etc but then you've got to tailor the hormone therapy to what her needs are so if she needs um, contraception for example uh, then you're you're maybe going to offer her the marina IUD which I offer a lot uh, there are some women that don't want to be on an IUD, so then you would offer them maybe progesterone um, in, in other forms, so either orally or um, vaginally. So the beauty of hormone therapy is that it is, there, there are lots of, lots of options for women and it, it can be tailored specifically for them. Mm. So it's, you know, if you've got a dry vagina, you, you've got pain with intercourse and that is your only issue then, uh, okay, you've got to review why. Why has she got a dry vagina? But often in the perimenopause and around the menopause, so <clears throat> when she's definitely menopausal, estrogen vaginal therapy works beautifully. Right. So, so you really are giving the HRT to treat specific symptoms that that particular person has, has got. Yeah. So it might even be something like hot 
hot flushes? That's right. I mean, hot flushes are the most common symptom of the menopause. And uh, we call this a vasomotor symptom. And that and dry vagina are the two most common symptoms. And by far, the most effective therapy for hot flushes is estrogen. And um, I find that women, you know, they come to me and they've had some hot flushes and they've gotten some relief from the kind of naturopathic herbal uh, approaches, which is fine, fair enough, absolutely fine for them to review that. But I find it doesn't tie them out. It doesn't last. The, the therapy isn't effective for months and years on end. What is effective for months and years on end is estrogen. Right. And would body weight have quite a lot to do with that? You know, if somebody's sort of underweight or overweight because, you know, of the, the fat, I guess, and the, the estrogen? Yeah, I mean, uh, we can make estrogen in our fat, in our body fat. Um, that definitely does happen, uh, which is why I, I feel that a lot of women biologically gain weight after they've gone through the menopause or go around the perimenopause because it maybe it's the body's way of saying, hey, our ovaries are winding down here. We need another alternative for estrogen. Um, what can we do? Maybe just pile on a bit of body fat. So I think there may be an element of um, protection there. I mean, that's more my theory. I don't think I've really read it um, that it's been well studied. Um, if you've seen that, please let me know. But when I, when I theorize why that is happening, um, that's one aspect I, I look at. Uh, I've always thought the same with that too. So, yeah. um, that, that makes total sense to it me. It makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I said to the women, look, it's not all bad that you're getting a bit more, a bit more fat around there or here. Um, it's not all bad that the body has, has, it's, it's wanting to look out for you and that's probably what it's doing. Um, but it's really important at that stage that women also are more mindful of their carbohydrate intake. So I would say to women, if you're going to be mindful about your carbs at any point in your life, it should be around the perimenopause when we know that estradiol levels are dropping and your insulin um, sensitivity is, is going down, you know, your resistance to insulin increases. So I think that's when women really need to, to read up about low carb uh, and being mindful of carbs. I mean, I have... I have an issue with women being super low carb um, because I, I, there is some evidence that it does disturb uh, ovulation, especially in women of the reproductive age group. Yeah. And I think that's, that's extremely important to, to note. Um, but at the perimenopause, I think it's important that we, we really have that discussion with women um, to minimize the amount of weight gain as well, you know, and to minimize the diabetes, the insulin resistance. Mm. Talking of insulin resistance, I mean, one of the, the areas that I really work in is the realm of nutrition and, and skincare. And when it comes to skin issues such as breakouts, acne, hirsutism, um, it can often be linked to these underlying conditions as things like insulin resistance. So what when it comes to these repro issues you know things like pcos what is going on with the what what is that connection with insulin resistance there because quite often um i know people will be put on medication to to treat that um so what's what's your sort of stance or you know how much is insulin resistance playing a role when it comes to hormones because you you have mentioned it a few times yeah, I look at it simplistically. 
Insulin, insulin resistance will increase generally luteinizing hormone levels. Um, and then what that does is it, within the, the biology of the ovary, may increase testosterone levels. And testosterone, we know, uh, increases acne. So, uh, you know, the issue is, is that we do these blood tests to check for acne, for, te for sorry, testosterone in women, yet we may see that levels are within normal range. However, surprise, surprise, a lot of the assays that were developed for testosterone were not studied in women. So, um, and, you know, I mean, skin, as you would know very well, uh, is, is, is way more complex than that. But when I think about it, that's in relation to insulin resistance and, and PCOS, that's how I, I see it. Because not all women with insulin resistance will have acne. Yes. You know, uh, so then there, is a, a, there are other, other factors that come into play. Um, you know, is it, is it their biology? Is it their genetics? Is it how they're looking after their skin? You know, if, if they have been told that they um, have PCOS, are they more likely to be depressed and then as a consequence eat worse food that then will aggravate the, the acne? Uh, it's so complex. Acne is yeah. a very yeah. fun to, um, yeah. to, 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 to get a grasp of. And I think acne, you know, it's multifactorial and, and there's a lot of factors that come into play. It's actually one of my favourite things to treat because I, I find it quite a, a fascinating thing. And then you've got the whole skin microbiome that also comes into play as well. So um, I think when you're looking at all of those aspects, but quite often it's, you mentioned earlier that, you know, I do see sometimes when people come in with acne and they've had their hormones tested and everything's been normal. and um, that's when you've got to sort of look outside the box and look at gut and liver and, and that's what I would do as a nutritionist and then look at the diet, look at topical um, skincare as well and then you can start to see an improvement. But um, it is interesting how the, the reproductive hormones are so closely linked with you know, the other hormones, like you mentioned earlier, cortisol and the thyroid hormones and, and insulin as well. So I don't think many people realise how everything is so interlinked. Mm. There's a fantastic book, book, The Remarkable Life of the Skin. I'm not sure if you've heard about it. No, I haven't. I'll check uh, that out. Yeah, I'm reading it now because I run a book club once a month called the Dr. Tash Book Club. And uh, that's our book at the moment. And we're also um, at our book club, which we're going to host by Zoom. Uh, we'll have a, a, a dermatologist present so we can ask her some questions. But that book really, oh, you'd love it because it talks about the, micro, the, the, the microbiome, but also the biome on our skin and how uh, stress hormone, i.e. cortisol, has a significant impact on not just acne, but things like rosacea, psoriasis. Mm. Uh, and that people don't factor that in too much. No, not at all. And then you... Yeah, then the whole gut component as well. I, I find it all absolutely fascinating. You mentioned um, HRT a little bit earlier. How, um, when it comes to, say, taking hormone replacement therapy, a lot of women are sort of concerned about it because of potential, um, I guess, health side effects and then want to go more for bio-identical hormones. How safe are um, how safe is HRT and do you think we should be sort of going more for bioidentical hormones? What's your stance on that? 
Well, when you think of hormone therapy, uh, the first thing you've got to realize is that all hormones are synthetic. Yep. So uh, a bioidentical hormone refers to compounded products and they're marketed as hormones that are identical to those produced by the body. Yep. But the issue with these products is that they're not subject to the regulation and the conditions of, of um, approved pharmaceuticals. Uh, and then in contrast, you've got the, what we call the body identical uh, hormone therapy. And that refers specifically to pharmaceutical products that have the same chemical structure as those produced in the human body. So the, the Australian Menopause Society does not endorse the bioidenticals, but I understand why the bioidenticals came into play and why they became popular because after the WHI uh, study came out in 2002 and frightened the bejesus out of everyone and, uh, said, oh, breast can you know, hormone yeah. therapy causes breast cancer, uh, that then women were told I'm not by their doctors, I'm not prescribing this for you. You know, there were issues around uh, litigation. Doctors were scared to prescribe it. And as a consequence, unfortunately, I think there has been a generation of gynecologists that really haven't been trained adequately, I feel, in this area and to the detriment of women. Mm. And, um, you know, there was then this... this uh, this spike in the use of bioidenticals because bioidenticals are made by pharmacists. So you, you, you would have heard of bioidentical um, pharmacists or pharma, you know, pharmacies where a doctor can give a script for a bioidentical and the pharmacist makes that specifically for the patient. So what is uh, nice about that idea is that that hormone therapy is tailored to that patient. It's a bit like when you go out and buy a, a, a dress from a, a high, like a high street store, um, you know, the fast fashion. That's not tailored to you, you know, but it's um, successful. You get it, you wear it. Whereas the uh, the bioidentical, I consider more like the couture range. Yeah. So it's kind of specified and made specifically for you. And they are also more expensive. These bioidenticals, mm. the pharmaceuticals. Uh, the concern is that they are, haven't been studied like the pharmaceutical products. So we're, we're worried about, uh, you know, how much is exactly in that product? Has that pharmacist done exactly what they were asked to do? And even those doses, are they correct doses that that doctor has prescribed to be put into that bioidentical? And, and will that dose mean that they're getting enough progesterone to protect the lining of the uterus from the estradiol? Um, or are they going to be at risk of um, endometrial cancer? Mm. Uh, so, you know, will that dose be effective enough to reduce the risk or minimise osteoporosis? I mean, over the years, I have seen a lot of women who, who come to me um, on bioidenticals and they ask me, um, I, I've, I've had some issues with it. I've been on it for a while. And I really, I've, I've really liked it. It's worked well for me. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of women who have been happy on the bioidenticals, but most gynecologists will not prescribe them because we haven't been trained to prescribe mm -hmm. them. Um, and I'm very comfortable to prescribe the, uh, the body identicals. Uh, and I was at one point interested in learning more about bioidenticals, but then I realised that I could do a lot of really good work with using the stuff that I was trained with and yeah. very effectively. So it's, it's very important that women understand that. So um, it, a lot of it arises from uh, issues around prescription yes. and the Women's Health Initiative or the Women's Health Study. So 
Yeah, that's a that's a long and debated. Uh, mm, it is. Yeah, it's a really good point you made though about the actual compounding, if you like, and and the prescription and getting the right dose. It's it's, it's because I often think that actually, even just with general um, compounding, <laughs> you think you know you've really got to know what you're doing, and you really are putting your trust in the person that is not only prescribing it but also making it as well. So. It's yeah, I mean, the, um, even if in prescribing the, the, the uh, you know, conventional hormone therapy that I've been trained to do, I will often have to change it for women. Yeah. Um, so it's not like you shouldn't expect to go to see a gynecologist or a, a GP because GPs prescribe hormone therapy as well and expect to be on that drug for 30 years. It doesn't work that way. Uh, alchemy is involved you know you often have to uh you know change the dose change the type of of of, of drug whether it's a continuous or what we call cyclical uh and that's the beauty of it as well because uh you are again tailoring uh the hormone therapy to that woman's need at that specific point in her life so a woman may find that her hot flushes go away and you will dial down the dose or maybe change it, and then she might only need vaginal um, estrogen, you know? Um, so it's very important that women understand that and that uh, uh, they have patience throughout the whole process uh, because, again, a lot of it's about expectation. Yes. If you expect that you're going to go and see a doctor and they're going to give you a script and it's going to solve every single problem stat, I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed. Hmm. Absolutely. And I, I, yeah, it's about expectation. And I think getting, you know, it's going to take a bit of tweaking as well because we're, we're all so different, but could HRT help? And um, I'd probably get shot down from all the women listening out here when I say this, <laughs> but I'm at that, look, I'm nearly 50, Dr. Tash, and I'm, I'm at that age where, and I've got a, I've got friends that have either been through menopause or they're perimenopausal and Probably one thing I noticed, and people may say this about me, but um, one thing I noticed and I've seen with women going through, I guess, perimenopause, the thing I noticed the most could be maybe more neurotic type behaviour and heightened anxiety. And um, I'm probably just like, oh, they're acting a little bit more... um, you know, strangely the normal, and I, I noticed it, and I probably put it down to hormones. But is that something that HRT would would help with? Significantly, yes. Yeah, yeah. You shouldn't get shot down for saying that because it's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. We know that women are more likely to develop to develop anxiety and depression perimenopausal. Absolutely, mm. uh, because they, you know, one month they might be ovulating, the next month they may not be. Uh, and with all these fluctuations in their hormones, uh, you know, that will happen that, you know, there'll be months when they'll, they'll be not sleeping very well. Um, and they, you know, if you don't sleep, you're going to, you're going to be shitty, you know, you're going to be, you're not going to be a great person to be around. And, and we will struggle more with sleep when we're perimenopause than at any other time in our lives. So I think it's up to women to understand that and not to be so harsh on each other. And yeah. when, when you see a woman who's going through the perimenopause, when her periods start actively changing, when she starts missing menstrual cycles, you've got to be aware of that, that girlfriend. And if she does become a bit more irritable and anxious, understand that a lot of it's got to do with her hormones. Yeah. Um, 
So that's, uh, that's, that's extremely important. And I think it, it's a great thing that you brought that up. Mm-hmm. And it's important for us women to talk about that. You know, how, do you know, you know, your, your girlfriends, do you know where they are in their, in their, um, in their reproductive lifespan? Mm. It's important for women to talk about it, you know, and we're having that gin and tonic, that champagne, that tea, whatever it is, just asking about, about your periods would be very important. I think that is the thing, um, you know, we should be talking about these things because I think as women, you know, quite often women take things on and they do a lot and they can feel quite overwhelmed and overburdened and think that the world is sort of crashing in and falling in around them when in fact it might be just their hormones are out of whack and they're just not dealing with things as effectively. And I think um, it is important that we can talk about these things and women realise that they're not alone and, and there is help out there. And there are amazing people out there like yourself that, that really understand hormones and, and can significantly help people. And I, I think maybe people don't realise that they when to get that help and um, when when is normal and when is not normal and i think if somebody is struggling um or finding it hard to cope that it might be worthwhile going to see a specialist in that area and and seeing what can be done yeah absolutely and you know self-education educating your girlfriend so if you've read a good book about the perimenopause on hormones tell your girlfriends about it you know put it on facebook you know um let people know or social media. That's, it's, it's so important we do that. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Tash, you're a mine of information. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> but, um, you know, some of the things that you've mentioned today I think are, are really valuable and um, you've got such a almost an intuitive approach, it sounds like, you know, very um, sort of solid medical base, but you're also very holistic with, with your approach as well, which I think is fantastic. If somebody wants to see you or find out more about you, I know you've also got a podcast as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yes. Yeah, so my podcast uh, is only you uh, started up this year. It's called... Uh, the Fanny Mechanic Show, and uh, awesome. I love the name. Me too. Um, and it's a women's health podcast, and we talk about everything to do with women's health, be it um, you know, sex, hormones, uh, diet. I'm going to ask you to be on there as well. Is that is that okay, Fiona? Absolutely. It would be my my honour and pleasure. I would love that because I love your book, The Forensic Nutritionist, mm-hmm. um, and. Yeah, so it's just about uh, educating women and sharing people's stories. And so it's me uh, interviewing experts like yourself, for example. Um, so that the Fanny Mechanic podcast, the Fanny Mechanic show um, is, is there every week for people to listen to. Uh, so uh, I'm also based in Newtown. Newtown is, is in Sydney, obviously, uh, and I have an office there. I am a fertility specialist with City Fertility. Uh, which is a beautiful um, fertility unit uh, down at Circular Quay. And, um, yeah, so I'm very happy to, uh, you know, one one thing I really love about seeing women is that they often bring to me things that I've never heard of or or, um, understood before. And uh, often that then sends me down another path and then uh, I learn from my patients as well. So... I, or what I love about clinical practice is, is when women bring up information that is new to me. So uh, I'd encourage women to do that with their doctors to, you know, educate them too. It's very important. 
Yeah, absolutely. And your Instagram is, let me just get this right, because I am following you at Dr. Tash, the Fanny Mechanic. That's right. Dr. Tash, yeah. the Fanny Mechanic. And then there's a Facebook page, Dr. Tash. Um, yeah, different forums. Fantastic. So, and when we put this podcast up or your, I'll put your details up there as well. So people know where to find you. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you.